Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine Miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I'm your host, Elaine Miller Karras. For our listeners, um, I want to let you know that we're on Facebook Live at Resiliency Within. If you'd like to also see myself and Chris Underhill, who is my guest today. I want to talk a little bit about Chris, and we're going to be talking about hope. And I've, uh, Chris works as a mentor and is a social entrepreneur in the field of quality of life and mental health in the community. I first met Chris in Oxford, England at the Skoll World Forum, and I was struck by his death depth of understanding of the suffering of individuals with mental health challenges. He also shares, she's gonna, he's going to share an abundance of hope and how to bring innovations to meet the challenges of those who suffer in developing countries. Chris Underhill draws on his lived experience as a child and his many years hands-on in the field, discuss resiliency and trauma in very poor communities in developing countries and at home. There's an important inspiring parallel between Chris's early struggles as a child, his own growth, and the growth of his mission in the support of many traumatized people around the world. Chris Underhill will share his humble journey and his wisdom today. And I wanna say a number, a few things about the number of enterprises, social enterprises that he started. So um, I'm going to say their names, but we're going to ask him to tell us a little bit more about what they are. But there's Thrive, which was an organization working in gardening, disability, and community. ADD International, working in the developing world with disabled people, creating systems of representation, advocacy, and policy development. He's also built several organizations in the field of global mental health, basic needs, which promotes the model for mental health and development created by Chris in 2000. And there also are a number of basic needs organizations in Ghana, Kenya, and Vietnam, which continue his very important message. And Chris runs his own mentoring practice called Mentor Services. He's the founder, a co-founder of a new organization benefiting social entrepreneurs. I love the name, the Elders Council for Social Entrepreneurs. He's a school <laughs> foundation awardee. A little bit more, Chris, you've done so much in social entrepreneurship, an awardee in social um, entrepreneurship of the Schwab Foundation and a senior fellow of the Ashoka and has been honored. This is a very important one. I didn't know what MBE meant and I had to look it up. A member of the Order of the British Empire by Her Royal Highness the Queen for his work on disability. Oh my, Chris, that is quite a resume. So you're definitely the first MBE we've had on the show. So welcome, Chris. Thank you, and thank you for that uh, very fulsome description. <laughs> well, you have a very wholesome and full life. So, you know, as as we get started, I always like to ask mm. my guests, you've just listened to a lot about yourself. Is there anything mm. on your mind right now as we're getting started that you want to share with our listeners? Well, um, yes, there are a couple of things that are on my mind. Uh, first of all, I'm delighted to be here, of course, um, and uh, looking forward to uh, talking with you and having uh, 
you know, quite an opportunity to talk with you because you're not you're not so unfamous yourself. <laughs> My goodness. Well, thank you for that. I, uh, I, I've done a few things myself. You definitely have, yes. especially in the field of resilience and trauma. Yes. We know that. And uh, so it's lovely to be with you. And because you're a busy woman, to get, you know, quite a long time with you is great. Uh, so that's... <laughs> That's a that's, well, and we have you know, had right some, dis- <laughs> and we've had discussions before this one. So I yeah. never find that there's a lack of words in between us. We can probably no. be talking for hours, Chris. So that's thank right. You. That's right. Thank you. And and uh, on a more serious note, I'm obviously aware that a very large number of people have uh, been feeling lonely and have been feeling unwell. Uh, they've had low uh, resilience, low mood during this COVID period. And so, you know, I'm very much aware of that. And obviously, at some point during our conversation, I think it would be good to talk it through a bit and just sort of reach an understanding yes. of what, what we understand by that. Yes. Um, but it's very important, I think, as, as one of the, uh, you know, significant pieces of our modern day. Well, uh, and, and I think we're all getting a bit weary of um, the, the impact that COVID-19 mm-hmm. has had on our lives. Mm-hmm. And also, I think that you know, the windstorms of life keep happening to mm. us as they would anyway. Mm. And I think those uh, forces coupled together have brought many of us to some, I think, um, some hard times. Yes, absolutely. I like the windstorms of life. That's a great phrase, isn't it, Elaine? But <laughs> yes. it's true. Yes. It's true. And, um, uh, and I think it's going to be what you might call the long tail of COVID because, you know, we, we are likely, I think, as a as a society, as societies, we're likely to be able to get on top of the virus itself. Yes, um, that's I think without question. Um, but uh, the depression and anxiety that people have been feeling, in you know, in very large numbers, uh, both amongst elderly people as well as young people, uh, is definitely the long tail, I think, and therefore it requires us to be attentive not to COVID as a virus but to the after effects of COVID. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And, and I know some of the things that, in fact, you shared something with me that we hadn't talked about before the right. show, which is Catalyst 3030. Is it 2030? 3030 would be quite the thing, but 2030, yeah. I think, is a little bit yeah. closer. Yeah. So can you, you know, just say a few words about Catalyst 2030, because I think yeah. it directly is related to what um, you're talking about here. Well, Catalyst 2030 was founded by a wonderful woman called Jeru, and she... Uh, felt it was important to bring social entrepreneurs, of which you and I are examples, uh, together, but not just in the field of mental health or resilience, but in many fields. And so the idea, uh, and the 2030 is the uh, clue here, the idea is that we all pull together, we lean in and pull together so as to ensure that social entrepreneurs have made the best possible contribution to the development of and to the achievement of the the Sustainable Development Goals, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs as they're called. And uh, I've been privileged by uh, Catalyst 2030 to start chairing the mental health working group of that larger organization. And we're beginning to put our plans together now uh, as a working group. Catalyst 2030 has been going for some time. But uh, we're beginning to put our own plans together as a working group. And we're very keen, you know, to, to be aware of and to be cognizant of the kind of things that we've just begun to talk about. Uh, and certainly to be very aware of the issue of trauma and resilience. Yeah. 
And, you know, as we're talking about this too, I, I feel it's really important that we also think outside the box. Um, I've been writing the second edition of my book and um, knowing that we have traditional mental health that really were designed for emancipated individuals to go see a therapist, which of course, uh, those of us that are fortunate to have mental health professionals in our communities, mm. I greatly believe in mental health um, uh, professionals and the, the mm. different treatments that they bring forward. I'm one myself, but I don't think it's enough. And right. I think that we definitely have to broaden our scope um, about how we bring in uh, different kinds of interventions and strategies that increase the mental health of our global community. So I'm so um, excited that you're heading this up, knowing your global lens, because I think that wide perspective that you have is, I know, will lead that group into exploring a lot of different possibilities. Well, I hope so. I hope so. We've got some great people on it, and they have their own uh, fantastic abilities and leadership. So I think together, we'll definitely make something out of it. And so, Chris, you know, I, it's really important that I think our listeners know a little bit about you. Many of them are listening to your fabulous British accent. You know, that, that's something that many oh, oh, oh. people that are listen, listening are from America. <laughs> you know, we always sound, you know, so, yeah. so uncouth by comparison. But in any event, um, but in any event, I, they, you know, in terms of knowing a little bit about you and about mm. your lived experience and what may have been some of the ingredients of your life that mm. have you know, really been uh, that led you to your journey of working in global mental health as you have. Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Um, uh, my parents were were fascinating. My mum uh, and um, father and stepfather, stepmother. Um, my my um, father and mother, when they met in Australia, they were Australians, and they came to England just after the war finished. Uh, they were very young, and they came to the to England just after the war, and they started to travel quite widely. He was a painter, um, and she was a writer, and so uh, life started pretty well. They then divorced when I was five, and that was probably um, you know one of the sort of early shocks that I sustained as a child. Um, I I remember it a little bit. But you know what happens with memory when, uh, yes. you know, when you don't want to, when you want to blot something out, to be blunt. Yes. Uh, then you can't remember things as well as you should, you know. Anyway, uh, a little while later, uh, I was living with my mum and by then Malcolm, my stepfather, in Corsica. Um, so I, this, now we're sort of, we find me at about the age of 12, 13, around there. Um, and... It was decided by the parental group that I travel back to London to go to school. Uh, and up, up to that point, I'd been homeschooled, basically. Um, and so I traveled back, and I stayed with my father and his wife, um, uh, my stepmother. And um, it was there that I was basically ill-treated. Uh, yes. And um, and it was in a, it was not physical chastisement or something of that nature. It was essentially that quite often I was not fed. Um, so they or, neglected they neglected the care of you. Yes, they neglected yes. the care of me, and um, and you know the the sort of thing that a kid would expect, like being prepared for school and you know all that stuff. All of that went by the board, so I had to do it all myself. And since I hadn't even uh, lived in the country for very long, it wasn't like I was used to it. Um, 
So that went on for a while. I found myself more and more ending up at one couple's house who were uh, who had uh, who were friends of my father and had befriended me. They were very concerned, and their son was about my age. He's probably my oldest friend still. Uh-huh. Um, and so uh, they were very concerned, and um, and I would end up there and sort of sleep the night, having walked through the dark streets to get to them. And so uh, this wasn't obviously going to end well, you know. No, I mean uh, you, that you were so at risk too by others yeah. seeing a, a young a young boy yeah. r- walking yeah. through the streets. That's right. So eventually, I had what um, uh, you know now I understand to be. Um, a mental health crisis, you know. In yeah. in those days, it it transformed itself as a tummy ache, uh, and and a very you know ch- children have that kind of ability of to transform they, their pain, you know. Of course, they we talk the somatic manifestations exactly of, of the traumas they're having, exactly. and so that happened to you. Yes, and so the ambulance was called. Uh, everybody said, "Oh, he's got an acute appendicitis," so I was rushed to hospital. Now, in those days, the ambulance, because uh, you know I. I was a kid who still observed things, right? Yes, uh, of course. So, uh, so I could hear that the ambulance, it was a bell ringing. So this, this will give you a sort of sense of what period we're talking about. It wasn't yes. a siren, it was a bell. Um, <laughs> a, a, admittedly an electric bell, but it was a bell. <laughs> yes. And uh, so we rushed to hospital, and uh, thank goodness the surgeon on duty who had been ready to whiz me into the theater, uh, he palpated and found that he didn't no. feel that I had appendicitis. No. And so uh, he took it on his own risk, you know, in case it was, but he took it on his own risk. And so began a journey, which I hadn't anticipated, no one had, which was the hospital then kept me in. They then, as far as I can judge, and these things are a bit misty, Elaine, but as far as I yeah. can judge, they didn't release me because they didn't uh, want to release me back to where I had been living. Was there uh, anything like Child Protective Services there at those, as, in those uh, days? Uh, uh, yes, there, there was such a thing as being made a ward of court, for example. Uh-huh. Um, same sort of, it, just a different language for the same thing, essentially. Yeah. And um, I had a lot of people come and uh, have, you know, question me, have discussions and so on and so forth. But one of the things that I always remember about that period was the kindness of strangers, you know? Yeah, yeah. And um, I was very... I think, in retrospect, I must have been quite distraught. Yes. Um, uh, and uh, a and nurse, alone, and very alone. Yeah, Taken absolutely. from your mom and Corsica and coming yeah. to a strange land. Absolutely, absolutely. So a mum was, uh, a, a mum, a nurse was deputed to keep an eye on me. And yes. she would come in and she took one look at me when she first came and said, right, well, we've got to get your hair cut. We've got to get you washed. I suspect deloused. Um, and um, and so there was quite a lot of immediate work to do. And then she would come in regularly every day. And uh, she did something which I think was really admirable. She would put me to bed, oh. you know, at, um, at lights out, you know, and, um, uh, and she would uh, read a story to me. Now, you know, some oh people when they're 13, you know, you might think that was a bit old. No. But, but for me, it was absolutely comforting, you know, to have that story uh, being read to me. You and were then being she cared would, for. You were being yes. cared for in just a very sweet way. Yeah. Then she would lean over, kiss me on the cheek, tuck me in, and uh, I would sleep. I slept like a bell after that. 
Um, and uh, I still remember, she must have had, um, you know, um, some moisturizer or something like that on her face. Yes. So I, whenever I smell that smell, mm. it immediately takes me back to her, you know. That's those implicit memory capsules we talk about, right? There you go. But they can be connected to our well-being and memories yeah. like that. Yeah. Also, sadly, the other, to trauma as well. But yeah. Yeah. it's important to also remember what else is true when those kinds yeah. of things happen. Yeah. So this is uh, beyond. This is before the days of email and mobile phones and stuff. So, so Malcolm eventually, Malcolm and Shirley, Malcolm, my stepdad, and um, Shirley, my mom, they eventually got to hear that my letters back, which I, where I had said everything was fine, uh, you know, uh, this is classic stuff, isn't it? Yes. Um, you know, um, they eventually got a letter from that couple where I had been uh, staying, you know, and going to see security. And uh, they said, look, Chris is in the hospital. This is what's happened. And uh, he came over and he was, he assessed the situation. Obviously, he felt very cross about it. And he took, took me back to Corsica, basically. Uh, and so then began a period of, what in professional language we'd call rehabilitation. Yeah, and healing, um, I, would, I would suspect. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And um, it took me about a year to kind of get back to where I'd started from, if I can put it that way. Well, and so, because um, I imagine there was, there was some malnourishment as well physically, mm -hmm. if, you yeah. weren't, if they, yeah. they weren't feeding you, as well as the psychological yeah. toll. Yeah, the hospital had made, made up for some of that, um, but certainly the psychological toll. Yeah. yeah. And mm. could I ask you a question? Were you mm. angry at your parents, uh, your mom and Malcolm for sending you there? Or was it, was that part of the journey or not? It's, it's funny. Um, I didn't feel particularly angry. Do you know what, Elaine? I don't think I felt actually angry yeah. with anybody, huh. um, uh, you know, in terms of the four main principles. Um, and, and I don't, quite know how to explain that to you um I, but i didn't i felt insecure of course yeah um and and so it took me a while so i guess we would say it took me a while to trust again to trust so it was more of a mistrust yes of of right. them rather than an anger yeah yeah um much later on in my late teens early early um 20s i did have a period of being angry but that but that could also be, you know, construed as being teenagers, uh, late teenage yeah, stuff. Yeah, it could, know? or maybe it yeah. was, a, or could it also be a mixture? Who knows? Who knows? You, you know, <laughs> or part yeah. of you knows, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, yes. but but even with that 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 difficult time you went through, I mean, and so much for sharing the story of the nurse and also the couple, mm -hmm. um, and your best friend who's still one of your dearest friends. Mm -hmm. So with all that, there were people that you know you had these little angels. Oh gosh, yes. yes, yes, yes. It's not. It's not all one way by any means. Yeah, um, and absolutely. And yeah. so, um, so from that, here you have. I'm going to kind of lead you to another question that's kind mm. of connected. Is that, you know, some people create one organization and make that their life work. Mm -hmm. um, you seem to have created a number of different organizations over your life that mm -hmm. certainly might help a child like you, right? If someone, you know in some country was struggling. So why, why do you think you tackled your passion um, your, in hope and resiliency in, in this way, yeah. coming from the story that you've shared with us? And thank you so much, Chris, for sharing that heartfelt No, it's, a, it's, it's, it's good to share it with you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think one thing I have to say is that I was able 
through a, a set of really good good fortune to eventually go to a school which was very which was very um uh, attractive and and a lovely school for me to be able to be in so it was a very different kind of school it was co-ed and that's where i met my wife or at least my wife to be uh and so uh the healing journey began quite early on and she and i uh, bonded when we were 16 and uh and we married when we were 21 22 and uh, we've been married ever since. So that's what, 52 years or something like that. Oh my that. goodness, that is amazing. Yeah. So that is part of the story, which, and I wouldn't want uh, Giselle, my wife, to not you know, get credit for that, because otherwise I think that would be a... Well, you know. I mean, she certainly has been a life partner, I mean, mm-hmm. since, since childhood. Yeah. So Giselle, yeah. thank you, Giselle, Giselle for being together Ex- with Chris. Exactly, thank you. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So now to your question. Um, I, for me, it was, um, and this may sound banal or a little strange, but um, I, I saw opportunity, a, a bit like a business person might see an opportunity, and I saw a, what, what you and I would call a social opportunity. Uh, and I realized that in, in Thrive, for example, which was the first organization, which I started in, you know, when dinosaurs still ruled the world in, in, in 1978, um, I, um, I started this organization, uh, and it, it's all about uh, nature. It's all about gardening, particularly horticulture, and how all of that uh, uh, benefits and can be worked with, with by d- disabled people, people with uh, dementia, people who are elderly. In other words, all the different uh, uh, needy groups who might really uh, really enjoy uh, gardening. And of course, uh, being the UK and raining a lot in the UK, as you know, and having terrible weather. Uh, <laughs> you are gar- island, I believe. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, you are, yeah, yes. Uh, yeah, but we've, uh, gardening is terribly popular, which is ridiculous <laughs> when you think about it. Uh, you know, it, 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 I mean, there should be some indoor pursuit, right, which is popular, but no, not at all. We all love going out and gardening. Uh, and my wife, by the way, is the keen gardener in our family. So uh, I realized that there was this incredible relationship between nature, between gardening, horticulture, uh, some forms of land use, and people. And that there there were many restorative, even curative, but certainly restorative elements to that. And so I was really fortunate in having a wonderful father-in-law who was very, very supportive of me, uh, in many ways a father figure, yes. uh, which again, I think is part of that healing journey. Elaine. And you met him when you were so young. Yes, you know? yes, yes, exactly. In fact, I almost missed him because I was on a train going there to stay for the first time at their farm and uh, I fell asleep. <laughs> 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 well, I'm glad you didn't miss him. So you must have woken up at some point. I woke. I woke. <laughs> yes. <I'm> like, ah. <laughs> I woke up and uh, snatched my suitcase off the rack and my coat, and then bundled out of the train just as it was about to leave again. And there he was. So I sort of fell at his feet, basically, uh, and uh, that amused him hugely. And then from then on, we got on like a house on fire. So, and he really helped me to get this because he was a a, a wonderful botanist. Um, horticulturalist, and he helped me to sort of frame the whole thing. 
Um, at that time, I had no idea what a business plan was or anything of that type, you know. So he helped me to frame it and he got the introductions for me, which meant that I could go and talk to the money people. Uh, and so I, you know, I had, uh, I went and presented as we would now say, but I mean, in those days, I just talked about my idea very passionately, you know. I could just see you as a young man, very passionately talking. I bet you had long hair too. I don't know. I did. I did. Long hair. Yes. Long hair. Rather than now where I have virtually no hair. Yes. Yes. And, um, and the gentleman in question, a Quaker uh, from one of those big foundations run by the Quakers, he said, um, could you write that down for me, you know, what you've just talked about? And I said, I was quite, I, being ridiculously naive, I said, really? But I've just told you. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, that would be really helpful. If you, if you actually made a written business plan, <laughs> yes, that would be good. I love that, that you were thinking about scalability, you know, if we, with your first kind of venture. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's I know. amazing. Really interesting. And so then what, ha- what happened with, with the organization? Well we, well, we put the money, we put the, we put a letter in, as he called it, and um, we put a budget together with the help of uh, Theo, my father-in-law, and um, everything was great. And then a little postcard arrived. This is still before email. And a little postcard arrived to say that they had received the documentation and we would hear in due course. And then time went on. We kind of almost forgot about it, except we didn't really. And um, we'd asked for money for three years to operate the uh, the basic charity for three years. And then finally a letter arrived. And it was just a letter, I just opened it like a normal letter. And inside was a check. Uh, and uh, it's, it said, you know, uh, we, the trustees had great pleasure in reading this and so on. And they're happy to say that they're going to fund it. But there's only one problem. My heart fell at that line, only one problem. And that is that we hadn't asked for enough. <laughs> oh, no. Bless them. Yes. Uh, so, um, uh, we, so they said, we would like you to ask for another, whatever it was, say three or 4,000 in those days. Yes. Three or that 4, was a lot of money. Something. Yes. That was a lot of money, something. yes. And so um, we immediately wrote back and said, we're asking you for the three or 4,000 <laughs> extra. I love that they asked you to ask them for more money. Yes, I yes. Mean, when does that happen, right? I know. Especially when you're first starting out. I know. And we, <laughs> I was so untried when you think about it. Well, and it's, then, it's, and, and it's the, your first success. Exactly. <laughs> many to check, come. <laughs> and the check was for 2,000 and it was to get us started. Uh, and then we, and then the rest was all sent at once. Can you imagine for three years, all set in one bundle? Oh uh, my, oh my! So word. Were, I mean, I would have seen that check. I think I might might have passed out a bit. Oh my goodness! Here you, here oh. I have my, yeah, the money sat, for my. We stood idea. there in the kitchen, Gisela and I. We stood there. We'd opened the letter. We stood there, and we just were completely gobsmacked. We were <laughs> dumbfounded. You know, we just yes. we were unable to talk for a few minutes. Oh, it's really oh, interesting. Chris, that is the most, that is a wonderful story. Um, I see that, oh my goodness, we're gonna, I'm going to have to have you back on the show again. We've only gotten through one of my questions and, <laughs> and it's time for our break. So, oh my God. <laughs> I know, we're gonna, definitely, there's going to be a part two, Chris Underhill, I just want you all to know. But in any uh, event, we're going to take a short break and okay. then um, listeners, we are going to come back and, he, and Chris Underhill is going to continue to tell us about some of the uh, amazing enterprises that he started and also more of his journey. So we'll be back in just a couple minutes and you'll hear a little bit um, from our sponsor um, and we'll be back shortly. Great. 
The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Elaine miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with Chris Underhill, and we've been having a lively discussion about the endeavors that he's been involved with, the charities that he's organized. We were talking about his first charity, and um, we would love to hear, well, so is it still going? You started it when you were 29 years um, old. That was a few years ago. Yes, it was. It was a few years years ago, Chris. Yeah. How delicate do you put that? (laughs) You must be a professional. I I must be. I I think, has it, did you just have like a 40 year anniversary of this organization? How did I know that too? Yes, exactly. And uh, (laughs) I was uh, invited to go back and, uh, you know, help cut the cake alongside a member of the royal family, which was great, uh, Princess Alice. And so, uh, it's lovely when you when you've started something like that and it's going uh, super well, you know, and uh, much larger than when I started it. And um, and uh, you go back and you kind of see the the whole idea laid out in a, but at a different stage, you know. 
right? And, and the fruits of your initial labor and how it's, it's uh, the, I guess, the tree, because the mm. tree is continuing to bear fruit. You know, I, have a, I have a question to ask you about horticulture and, and mental mm. health. It does mm. seem to me that when people sometimes work with the ground and mm. grow things and see things sprout from seeds, that there's something mm. happens inside of us as kind of part of the greater whole of the earth. I guess mm. I've had that experience is that mm. part of it, do you think, in the work that you did with folks that came sure. and worked on the land? Sure. I mean, I, you can look at it in many different ways. You've got the, you've got the mechanical aspect. So if um, somebody has had an, orth, you know, an orthopedic operation or, you know, uh, uh, maybe a, a, uh, a knee operation or something like that, and they've got to be able to move as part of the uh, rehabilitation process, being able to um, prick out plants and work, you know, in an organized, systematic way takes you out of the pain that you're experiencing. And it literally means you've got to focus and concentrate on these tiny seedlings, you know, otherwise yes, you'll destroy yes. them, you know. Yeah. So there is these kind of mechanical aspects which are very important. There is a spiritual dimension too, I think. A lot of people really relate yes. and commune to nature and to, you know, growing uh, plants of all kinds, both floral as well as uh, fruit and veg, you know. Um, and I think that's uh, extremely important. And to some extent, uh, nature is forgiving. I mean, if you, if, if you can, you know, if you plant something and, it, and it's not quite right, you know, uh, it may well still sprout, you know. Yes. Um, and so, you know, I think all of that is important. I remember, Elaine, very early on in the start of that organization, we were working with um, uh, people with Down syndrome. And um, th at that time, it sounds uh, archaic now, but at that time, a lot of them were still in hospital. So they were long-term hospital. And so with a wonderful and compassionate uh, gentleman, psychiatrist working in the south of England, he invited me to set up a horticultural therapy program. Um, and mm. so we did. And one of the young men who was in it tapped me on the shoulder one day and he said, Chris, I want you to come with me and I've got something to show you. So we went into the ward, rather dingy ward, you know, uh, nothing cruel about it, but just not very imaginative, you know, and a bit sort of stayed. And uh, there were beds lined up one after the other, a bit like any ward. And there was a little tiny cupboard, a bed cupboard, you know, next. And uh, that was his only private space, basically. Mm. Now, there was his dad and mum uh, sitting on the bed, uh, waiting f for this apparition to come, i.e. me. <laughs> so he wanted you to meet his parents. Yes, he wanted me to meet his dad and mum. So we, we met and there was nowhere to sit. So we all sat on the bed. Uh, and then um, he said, now, dad and mum or mummy and daddy, whatever he called them, he said, now um, I've got something for you. And so he opened the cupboard door, his little cupboard door, and pulled out a huge cabbage. Oh, my gosh. Like this, you know, <laughs> a huge cabbage. I mean, you know, really big, very well grown, and uh, presented to them. As you can imagine, they burst into tears. I burst into tears. You know, we <laughs> he was so proud of something he that, was, he had, yeah. that he had grown. Oh, my gosh. Well, yeah. I just want our listeners to know, if you could see Chris's face, he had a smile from ear to ear when he talked <laughs> about the cabbage. Yeah. But isn't that a moment? I mean, that to me, that's the moment. You know, we talked this program is about hope. Yeah. That's those moments of hope, isn't it? Yeah. That yeah. here, yeah. a young man who was born with um, 
you know, uh, a, definitely a challenge mm. and that you could bring something into his life mm. that would make him feel, you know, yeah. so accomplished, empower him, right? Yeah. Empowerment, I think is, and I, and I guess, you know, kind of a segue to that amazing story is that you have worked um, with community mental health. Mm. And I know there's the Action on Disability and Development, um, which you began in 1985. And that was even mm. before the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So mm. how did that camp come to be? And what, what was that, that next part of your journey? Um, sure. Well, I, I had long, yeah, with ADD, yes, I'd long taken an interest in, in the developing world, you know, um, and uh, had started to travel in countries like uh, Zimbabwe, um, and in fact had been invited to join uh, a commission looking at uh, the best way in which um, people coming in from the ex-combatants, wounded ex-combatants coming in from the front line during that uh, civil war that uh, Zimbabwe had, um, as it went from Rhodesia to to uh, Zimbabwe, looking at the best way in which they could rehabilitate. So that was, and in, and in the context, I then met a whole bunch of disabled people who were really strong, very um, well-organized, quite militant. And we sat in a room together one day and they said, what we need is help in organizing our own organizations, organizations of disabled people. And what we need are, is training, we need funding. Uh, and and uh, so in the end, it, didn't, it took a little while to kind of crystallize, but in the end, I realized that what they needed was a kind of development agency, um, which would have their back and uh, work uh, not for them, actually, because the whole point of disability liberation is that people should represent themselves. Yeah, so working um, with them, alongside exactly. them. Yes, in, exactly, in, um, in compatriotship, if you like, yes. in comradeship. And so we, I, I went back to the UK eventually and, um, and uh, started to put this together. So then eventually I had to say to my trustees at Thrive, look, I want to go and start this new thing. <laughs> and uh, they were a bit fed up <laughs> because uh, we'd, we'd got to quite a nice stage at Thrive, you know, seven years in. And, uh, and I said, no, no, I really want to go. And... Um, so they, uh, so we organized it all well, and we had a great successor come in, and that was fine. And then, as a gift, they gave me a bike <laughs> they said, to ride to your next journey. Yes, but yeah. but but Chris, uh, at this time, you knew how to not only talk about a plan, but to write it down for your next yes, funder. So you already had right. that. You were ready to go yeah. for for the. I was uh, exactly, yes. exactly, and 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 we did have a lovely angel at that time, a gentleman who unfortunately now has passed, but. A, man, a, a gentleman called Lord Joffe, J-O-F-F-E, Joel Joffe. And he um, had been the, uh, uh, the advocate uh, for Nelson Mandela before, oh, uh, wow. during the uh, Rivonia trials, uh, before he went off to Robben Island. And so when Joel realized that uh, they had lost the case, you know, and, uh, and, uh, but in many ways morally won it, um, uh, he and his wife, Fanetta, came to the UK and then eventually started a business and eventually were in a position to back these madcap ideas, one of which was mine. Um, <laughs> and, and he was so sweet the way he helped me to make that business plan, uh, by the way. 
uh, I remember passing him the first business plan and it came back with red ink all over it. <laughs> <laughs> Saying, okay, we need this, we need this. No, we yeah. need to improve this. So, yeah. so you yeah, had yeah. some good angels and good instructors. Yes. Instructing but angels, he, yes. He and Veneta were, and uh, his company were really fantastic at putting their mouth you know, where their money was, or their money where their mouth was, I should say. Um, and uh, in that case, you know, we were able to set up the organization in good stead and get going. And um, it's still going today. Uh, uh, and it's uh, still a wonderful organization, still working in the service of disabled people. Uh, so right I'm just wondering, did you, countries. did you get a helicopter when you left this organization if they gave you a bike <laughs> after the first one? <laughs> I imagine they didn't want you to go either. <laughs> no, no, but I, I um, they gave me a surprise party, which gave me a hell of a shock. <laughs> I, was, I was absolutely, what? What's that? <laughs> it was one of those ones where, you know, I haven't got much hair. I used to have a lot of hair, like you pointed out earlier. Yes, I think yes. I probably lost it at that moment. Um, it was... Um, yeah, no, it was great uh, to be able to leave them in good stead. And they're still going today, as I say. Well, I mean, and so, um, you know, we're not going to be able to talk about all the organizations that you've inspired and created. Mm -hmm. But I, I do want to talk a little bit about your your perceptions about mm -hmm. what are the ingredients that contribute to global mental health? Here mm -hmm. you're, you know, they've asked you to chair um, the Catalyst uh, Committee on this mm -hmm. and I imagine you must have a lot of ideas and I think our listeners would be really interested in some of the concrete ideas that you have. Would you share some of those with us? Yeah, but pleasure, pleasure. Um, I, I mean, I th I, my interest in this really stems from uh, community mental health. In other words, how can, the, how can people r with a mental health concern or issue live in the community uh, in many cases, they're not going to get access to a, uh, a, a licensed or, or trained mm. professional in the normal sense of the word. Exactly. So how, how are they going to get sucker? How, the, how can they be supported? Um, and so uh, I, I really began to think about this, particularly in the context of uh, the developing world. It started in India, in fact, um, and then uh, moved out to Ghana and then to Sri Lanka. Uh, and then to 15 other countries over time. Uh, um, and when I left it, we were reaching just under, uh, just over 800,000 uh, people. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, a big affair by the time I left it. Now, is this, so, bas is this basic needs? Yes, basic yes. needs. Yes, yes. Yeah, so that's, that's the right. name. Yeah. And um, uh, I was I was very concerned that we reach as many people as possible. So at a certain point, we... Uh, the organization, although after I left it, merged with a wonderful organization called CBM in the UK. But some of the basic needs officers have remained basic needs around the world. So we've got, as you said earlier, basic needs in Vietnam, Laos. There's also one in China, uh, one in India, and one in Ghana, and one in Kenya. So we've got, and one in the US, by the way. Uh, so with a, a, a marvelous committee of people running it in the US. So we have a number of basic needs organizations operating and CBM also, and they're all working on this model that I developed. So for me, the model for mental health and development was essentially a way of galvanizing the community to, to understand what mental health issues were, that they were not something to be frightened of, that they were not something that was uh, a curse from above, 
that these were uh, issues that were very understandable and often very treatable and very often very understandable, particularly if the family had also been given training and understanding in the context of mental health. And so uh, we were able to set up shop and work in countries which had, you know, a, a very sparse number of trained individuals, but we were able to put into place the resources necessary so that people could, first of all, be identified as having a problem, then the families be uh, supported and consoled if it was a, an issue that they were really anxious about, and eventually uh, working together as a community effort, uh, seek treatment where it was appropriate, and certainly work with people so that they could uh, start to make a buck. Because, you know, the uh, one of the huge problems about mental health is that you tend to get excluded. And so exclusion becomes one of those, it's often referred to as stigma, but you, you become excluded from the society which you love and which you feel part of. And one of the ways to come back into the society is if you can be trained or supported in a livelihood of some kind. Yeah, so they can Even be contributing members of their of their society. Yeah, so absolutely. So absolutely. The, the persons that provided the education hmm. so that people could understand, you know, hmm. what mental health challenges were hmm. um, and who would bring the information to the families. Now, hmm. were, were these community workers that you trained? So what I call natural leaders of the community to come in and, and exactly. to reach out? Yes. yes. So some of those natural leaders are volunteers. Yes. Some of them are paid. Some, some halfway, a little stipend of some kind or another. Um, we also had a scheme at one point, talking of bicycles, uh, whereby uh, all, all of those people got a bicycle as part of their stipend so that they could cover more terrain. Um, and, um, and that proved very popular. It also proved very popular to sponsor a bicycle. Um, so, uh, yes, we, we basically designed a program of activity which included and incorporated the the consultation of, of uh, individuals with mental health problems and their families. And then it included uh, an attempt to try and access treatment where necessary. And it included um, uh, what, I've what I told you about earlier, the, uh, the whole income generation stuff. Yes. And, and it also supported people coming together to create their own self-help groups. So you had self-help groups of people with a mental health problem. And, and so they were coming powerful. together, yeah, coming. Yes. And I think what's really important for our listeners that if you haven't traveled, you know, in terms of our global community, hmm. and you know, I could say this even in the United States, um, hmm. in different parts of our uh, country hmm. and rural areas, hmm. that there aren't really enough mental health providers to provide the kind of help that is needed. And I think, especially, you know, we first started out today talking about the pandemic. Hmm. I mean, so many people, um, children you know, teens, adults, seniors are impacted by the pandemic. And if we yeah. only leave it in the hands and say, oh, what is the licensed mental health response? Yes. It's not going to have the impact no. that we need as a global community. No. And I think the ideas like basic needs is, you know, how do we um, 
mobilize those yes. natural leaders of communities. Yes. And as again, I think even from your when you talked about ADD, about being with people, not doing it for them, yep. is that you were collaborators and partners. And I think from the first time you and I met, Chris, mm. we were had the same ideas about how we um, access communities to really yeah. try to help with the the yes. challenges of, yeah. of of the mental health challenges that sure. we're experiencing right now. I mean, I think we all need to, we of course all appreciate the professional person. Of course we do. Of um, course. Yes. And so, it, so it's not about, it's not about um, ignoring their skills. It's actually about um, optimizing those skills. Maximizing, exactly. Because yes, you have exactly. the, the, the best systems work with a triage system yeah. so that the, maybe people with more profound, the chronic and persistent yeah. mental health conditions yeah. like yeah. schizophrenia, for example, yeah. that they get the kind of help they need because yes. also, sadly, you know, the kinds of medications that stabilize mood, for example, are not as readily available in many of the places you and I have worked. Yeah. Um, and so there has Absolutely. to be other systems of support, or if there's minimum, if there's just a small pocket of resources, yes. how can you maximize those mental health resources? So, yeah, and no, we I, would never want anyone who's listening who's a mental health professional to think that <laughs> we're, we're all important in the in the chain of command, so to speak, and yes. how we support. Well, I think, and I think culture is really important here. You know, um, yes. the, the, you know, I think it's really important to understand. Uh, how people regard someone with a serious mental illness in a different country. And if you want to uh, offer training, you know, um, about a particular illness, for example, then it has to be done with cultural sensitivity, you know. Yes. And, and that's why I've always used trainers who are from the local area. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've, I've very rarely uh, used trainers who are from abroad, as it were. Uh, and, uh, you know, from abroad to that place, uh, it's very important, I think, for uh, people who understand the culture to be able to teach within the culture and help to be able to make progress in that way. And I think, you know, that cultural lens and even the wording that we use may be very different in mm. the West compared mm. to other countries. Mm. We've certainly found the same thing. Mm. And also it's more um, accessible when there's a person who speaks my language, who looks like me, right, who is delivering a message that is about maybe shifting some of the art perspectives. Um, and certainly um, with mental health conditions, I mean, this is something that we continually need to, to work on because mm -hmm. there's still, sadly, a lot of stigma associated with it. Absolutely. Oh my goodness, Chris! Our time is getting is 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 almost up. So I don't want us to leave without us talking about um, city cities rise and the Elders Council of Social Entrepreneurs. Yes. So can you let us know a little bit about the of, of these two endeavors? Yeah, sure. yeah. Uh, cities rise is an organization that I co-founded with uh, Moitri Singha, and um, it's an organization which works as as it, as the name implies in the big city, uh, and it. It's chosen a number of big cities around the world, and it, its particular um, emphasis is on youth within that. Um, it's done very, very well indeed, and it's, uh, it's, it's uh, in full gear, motoring along. Uh, and, uh, and I'm you know, delighted uh, that it's um, so successful. And when it comes to the Elders Council, the Elders Council for Social Entrepreneurs, so uh, about three and, three and a half years ago, four years ago, Andrea Coleman, Mel Young and myself, three uh, musketeers, um, uh, all of us grey-haired musketeers, we uh, met 
and um, we decided that there was a gap in the market. There you go. Uh, that, you know, that um, a whole lot of us, I had started my first organization in 78, a whole lot of us, the baby boomers, were coming to an age, those of us who were social entrepreneurs, coming to an age where we were beginning to hand over the reins. You know, some call it transition, some call it succession, etc. Yes. And so, uh, handing over the reins meant, you know, a whole question, a whole number of things. Some people very sad, some people very disorganized, some people you know, going on to do something totally different. And so it went on like that. So we felt let's uh, create an organization that we can be members of. And uh, you can, you you know, it's not a fee paying thing. It's just you can join if you want to. Uh, and it's uh, elderscouncil.net. And, um, and you can uh, join our webinars, which, have, which are now very popular, and where we discuss all of these issues in more detail. And the beautiful thing, Elaine, is that although it was designed for that particular age group um, or age profile, a lot of young people join us. <laughs> They're finding value from the mentorship from the elders, I imagine. I guess so. <laughs> I, I guess, guess so. so. So we have a lovely mix now, which is even better. Well, I definitely need to hop on because I would love to listen at some point. So, Chris, welcome. and we have a couple of minutes left. As we are ending, it's rarely important that people know how to get in touch with you. They may want to find out how they can be part of some of the, the projects that you're working on. Can you mm. let us know what is the best way to get in I, touch I, with Chris Underhill? I, I think probably my email is the simplest. Um, okay. Would that be all right? Yes. So uh, what is your yeah. email? Just go ahead and say it out loud. Yeah. So it's chris at chrisunderhill.com. Well, that's easy. Chris at chrisunderhill.com. Okay. I'm yep. going to repeat that. Mm. Um and so, Chris, are there any, we have like two minutes left, hmm. any wisdom, parting words that you want to leave our, our guests with today? Um, I, I think uh, never go into an enterprise such as the sort of ones that we've been talking to or talking about <laughs> without having a sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we did talk about hope. We were talking about this before the show aired, how we both yeah. have learned that a sense of humor is just yeah. Im very important. Absolutely. Because so, that is the, uh, that's in a sense, the herald of hope, isn't it? Yes. It, the herald of hope. Yes. Um, a sense of humor. So Chris, mm. I just want to thank you so much for, coming on the show today and we will definitely have you back you know later part of the year and you can give us part two and we can delighted. hear a little bit more about about your wisdom i'm i am also very um very intrigued by the work that you're doing right now about right. bringing this vision and these ideas from your lived experience to you know another whole set of folks that are thinking about expanding it out into the future right now yeah. we need it more than ever Absolutely. So, so thank you, Chris. Um, yep. And he stayed up very late. So I think it's like 10 o'clock, right? In yep. England right now. Yep. So yep. Yep. thank I'm you for staying up. I'm going to have to get up. my cocoa. Yes, you're going to have to get your cocoa and go and take a little <laughs> take a sleep. And for my listeners, thank you so much. Remember what else is true. When we hear about Chris and the struggles he had as a child, and look at how, yes, he, had, he leaned into suffering, but then he leaned out into creating hope and resiliency and reaching out to some of the most underserved and oppressed in the world and creating innovation and ideas to really bring vitality and to acknowledge and empower what was already there. So remember what else is true in your life. And if any of you are suffering that you might need some assistance, remember our sponsor, the Trauma Resource Institute.com. You can go and just go into the website and they can um, 
refer you to a mental health professional. And also there's many webinars on the community resiliency model that are skills that can help enhance your well-being. So until next time, remember what else is true. Signing off. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.